This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I wanted to say just a couple of things about um, today's talks, which I think you'll all agree were fantastic and very interesting. Um, yes. Um, Hopefully, I'm uh, not as, uh, you know, when I think back about um, all that's really happened and developed in the field of ancient DNA, it's really quite amazing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm older than I hopefully look, but um, when, I was a, uh, when I was a graduate student in 1990, I actually started working on ancient DNA and this very new field of ancient DNA. There were only a handful of papers that were published. And um, I talked to my advisor and got him to agree that I could, could give this a try. Uh, and I started doing some preliminary work with this brand new technology called PCR, right? And it was great. And I managed to, you know, I worked really hard and I got a few bands. And I did these analyses and saved them on my five and a half inch floppy. <laughs> and, um, and my advisor, uh, it was very laborious, let me tell you. Uh, my advisor said, you know, there's this new conference, um, international conference on ancient DNA. Why don't you go to that and, and, and talk about what you've done? And, and so I printed out my paper on the dot matrix and <laughs> off I went to Nottingham, England. And there were really only 30 or 40 of us there. Um, it included Svante Pabo and Erica Hagelberg and Dan uh, Bradley, who's done some amazing work on... Um, domestication of cattle. And, um, you know, I don't think any of us there thought that now we would be looking at, you know, these genome sequences from archaic humans. Um, I think that was really beyond the pale because uh, if you think back, uh, those of you who were even alive, um, (laughs) some of you were, I know. if you, you know, that was a time when the Human Genome Project was just beginning, and these technological advances have, have both in terms of just the sequencing technology, but also the computational biology necessary to analyze these data, um, have just, it's been really astounding. Um, and with the Neanderthal Genome Project, um, these ancient DNA methods were really pushed um, farther, and, and like Matthias Meyer, I'm, I'm very excited to, to see what comes next. You know, also in the early 90s, we were in the out-of-Africa versus multi-regionalism debate, and I think we now are, you know, it's, it's obvious from today's talks that we're in the mostly out-of-Africa, look at all these interactions and admixture events that have happened. It's really quite fascinating. Um, another thing that I would point out is the analysis of the modern human genomes is imperative for understanding the context and seeing these patterns of local adaptation um, and then now with the ancient data of seeing how they develop through time. Um, and I think Johannes's talk was really lovely in giving us that really fine-grained sense of population history in Europe. Um, and we're beginning to also see that to some extent in the Americas. I think it's also fascinating to think that the archaic human, archaic human cousins are still with us in a sense, in that we have these pieces of DNA that that give us uh, really fascinating insight into 
what they have given us and also into what they haven't given us, I think is also quite fascinating. Um, and so now I think perhaps we are ready for questions. All right, so I'm going to turn it over to Ed for the first 20 minutes of questions. Okay, uh, thank you, Anne. Um, you have your work cut out for you, too. There are a bunch of uh, questions for the second half. I have uh, uh, picked out um, a few of the many fantastic... We have a question over here, if someone wants to get that. Um, questions that were submitted via these cards, so uh, speakers from the first part on your toes. Um, so the first one um, uh, comes uh, for Sriram. And the question is, um, did we inherit diabetes strictly from Neanderthals? And I would like to embellish this question a little bit. Is, is there any particular single thing that we can say, we got that from Neanderthals? Yeah, I think um, this was also pointed out in, uh, in Tony's talk, which is for most uh, phenotypes that we care about, they are um, what we call complex phenotypes, which means they are influenced by a multitude of genes, each of which has a small effect, uh, coupled with the environment. And um, so given that one of these genes or a few of them came in from the uh, Neanderthals, uh, doesn't really tell us uh, that Neanderthals gave us, uh, uh, Neanderthals are the reason why we have increased risk for type 2 diabetes. Um, so they do modulate the risk uh, to a small extent, uh, but by no means are they the, the single dominant reason why we have type 2 diabetes or, for that matter, uh, any other complex phenotype. Um, uh, I, I think we are yet to find a, 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 a good example of a phenotype where Neanderthals gave us the gene for, uh, for the trait of interest. Thank you. Um, uh, so the next question is for Brenna, and this is um, concerning the, um, the much older Y chromosome uh, that was found um, in current populations in West Africa that was a bit of a, a stunning thing that this Y chromosome tree we thought we knew forever. Then I think initially it was found someone in South, uh, South Carolina and then later uh, West African population. How does this uh, influence how we interpret uh, uh, African population history? That's a great question. Sorry, that's a great question. Um, yes, yeah, so there, there have been um, initially this one very divergent Y chromosome that was found in an African-American individual and coalesces much deeper in the tree than the Y chromosome phylogeny that I presented approximately 200,000 years ago. And I personally think that... Um, this is probably the best evidence we actually have for archaic, archaic introgression within uh, contemporary African populations. Um, I, I'd like to point out that it's basically only been found in a handful of individuals, so it doesn't really explain the vast majority of Y chromosome variation that you see in Africa, which is really more representative of the tree that I put up. Um, but it's um, certainly suggestive of archaic introgression. Great. Um, so the next uh, series of questions here, kind of on the theme uh, for uh, 
Christina Warner. Um, the first one, uh, how is the use of mouthwashes seriously affected our microbiome? Has that happened? Um, so a very kind of contemporary thing. And then uh, a similar question, um, what about uh, cooking? Do we see anything in the record of dental calculus to reflect any kind of changes that might have happened around cooking our food? So these are great questions. Um, I can rest assured, I can you know, leave you assured that uh, mouthwash actually does absolutely nothing um, except <laughs> give you fresh breath for a brief period of time. Um, so it, it doesn't appear to really alter in any persistent way your oral microbiome. What probably is having a much more um, intense effect is toothbrushing, obviously. You're constantly removing the, the um, plaque from your teeth. And as a result, um, one thing that I've noticed, and in combination with modern dentrifices or toothpastes that are tartar-controlled toothpaste. They actually slowly dissolve the tartar in your teeth, and that does seem to actually shift your microbiome. Um, the, as I showed you, those layers that, that form on teeth, they actually are microbially structured. Um, the first bacteria that, that, that can attach to teeth are um, they're called early colonizers, they primarily Streptococcus and Actinomyces, and then other bacteria build on them, and if you're a really aggressive toothbrusher, um, you keep scraping off all that plaque, and so you constantly have early colonizers and you don't get the late colonizers that form, it's actually really good for your health because the periodontal pathogens are late colonizers. So toothbrushing is highly effective and does change your oral microbiome, but mouthwash does not. It's a long answer to a short question. Um, and the second question was about cooking. Um, and that's actually a fantastic question, and it's one that I, I'd really like to investigate myself, and I haven't uh, made much progress in that direction. I can say, though, that some really interesting work um, done by Amanda Henry at the Max Planck, she actually works on starch granules, similar to the ones that I showed. Um, and she has been looking at whether or not she can actually identify cooked starch versus uncooked starch by looking at some of those. And there are some changes that occur to starch during cooking that might indicate the, the introduction of cooking that then we could potentially triangulate with oral microbial changes. But we aren't quite there yet. But I think it's actually a, a great question. Thank you. Um, one for um, uh, Matthias Meyer. Um, someone very impatiently asks, why is it taking so long to date Homo naledi? And has its DNA been sequenced? Uh, so I will uh, put that to you and um, broaden the question a little bit. Um, the, uh, this field is, um, has been, since the beginning, kind of driven by technology. Um, for this sample or any other samples, are there any um, great technologies that uh, you can imagine on the horizon that might be the thing that we, in five years, look back on and say, yeah, that really sparked the next revolution? I mean, regarding the Homo naledi, I think that is a question for the Rising Star Expedition team. I think it's a very complex sort of site to date for geologic, uh, geological methods. There's sort of, you know, I think the stuff sort of lies on the ground, basically. There's nothing on top of it, and it's probably going to be very difficult. There are no sort of DNA results from this, as far as I know, but who knows <laughs> if that would ever come. Um, Generally, I mean, I think there's still room for improvements in uh, ancient DNA research. For example, um, kind of my group, we're also working on DNA repair attempts. That has been done in the past, but I have some reason to believe that we would be, do better now. Um, yeah, I think it's too early to give up, right? Um, so, yeah, I think there will be, you know, more things coming. Great. Um, next question for uh, Kai. Um, 
someone wants to know, could the extinction of Neanderthals be related to the um, inbreeding that you showed? That's a good question. <laughs> um, so so um, I, I can't really answer this really, uh, really. I mean, inbreeding itself is not necessarily deleterious, right? So you, you can have lab mice that are inbred, for instance, and they are living very happily in their cages. Um, so inbreeding itself is, is, is certainly not necessarily a reason that, that, that um, a group of humans must go extinct. So that's for sure. But, uh, of course, if you see a decline in the size of the population, then uh, you can kind of say, okay, this, this might be caused by something. Uh, and what this something is, we don't really know. So it could be uh, pathogens, or it could be um, just uh, harsh living conditions, or, or just changes in the environment. And I really have to say that uh, there, there's, uh, there are many different papers that actually try to answer what made Neanderthals extinct? I think for me, I have not heard an answer that I believe 100%. Maybe it's a mixture of different things. Uh, very nice. Um, we're going to do another one now for uh, Brenna, and then perhaps it will be time to switch over to the second uh, group of speakers. So um, this goes to Brenna. Um, we see a strong drive in humans to spread throughout the world and interact in some way with archaic species. But there seems to be very little backflow into Africa, as evidenced by a lack of Neanderthal Denisovan DNA in African genomes. What factors may have prevented backflow of genes into Africa? That's a complex question. There actually was a recent paper arguing that there was gene flow back to Africa, specifically into northeastern Africa and Ethiopia, using an ancient genome. That paper is now somewhat uh, controversial due to some biostatistical mistakes. Um, I actually, uh, a few years ago, looked at gene flow from the Near East into North Africa, and one of the things that we did see at that um, in that paper is that there likely was an event um, back to Africa approximately 30,000 years or 30 to 40,000 years ago. And so I would say that it's not it's not a closed um, it's not a closed junction. Um, I think there have been periods in time that are probably climatically influenced in which populations did move back and forth between the Near East and Northeastern Africa. But Africa is a highly complex environmental area. Uh, so if you think about adaptation to local environment, for example, malaria is really prevalent in some areas of Central and Eastern and Western Africa. And um, you're going to have a hard time surviving there if you don't carry uh, alleles that allow you to be not susceptible to malaria, for example. So there, it, it, I think it's probably a combination of both environment and local adaptation um, to some pathogens that have probably influenced um, relatively low levels of back-to-Africa migration. All right. I said that was the last one, but I'm going to um, take the uh, uh, organizer's prerogative and ask Matthias Meyer uh, one more question. Um, so the... Um, the dating for the um, split between what would become modern humans and what would become Neanderthals and Denisovans with the uh, Sima de los Huesos sample, this has been pushed back in time. But we thought we had a, um, 
a reasonably good answer for that uh, uh, with wide error bars, but the, the, and that was up to something like 400,000 years ago. Now you've shown this was more distant in the past. The first estimate was uh, based on comparing alleles that we share with Neanderthals. How often do, or do, can we expect to see this in a modern human population? So how old are these things? How long ago in the past they must have split? But now we know somehow... That must have there must have been some something wrong with that. Um, uh, how uh, uh, where does the discord come from, and um, is there a chance that we find yet another um, archaic hominin that that can cause us to revisit this yet again? Is this the final answer on the split between humans and the things that we are most closely related to, but they're extinct? And don't say good question. Um, I, I, I mean, in principle, um, I mean, this, there's some uncertainty there, of course, with the dating of the SEMA site also, right? I mean, it's the genetic evidence and the geological evidence seem to sort of converge, but confidence intervals are very large also in this case. The, it's like to give a good answer to this rather detailed question, I think Kai might be a better person to do that. Um, <laughs> As the genetic estimates of population splits were actually uh, sort of described in the Altai Neanderthal paper that he first authored, so I think he has a chance to explain that in better detail. So I think uh, Christina might also weigh in on this question. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so there, there essentially uh, there's, there's one big thing, that uh, one, one kind of very basic parameter of, uh, in, in any study of, uh, of evolutionary questions that have to do with time, and that is the mutation rate. And it is actually massively surprising that it took us so long to kind of come to a whole a conclusion what this number should be. And uh, so then it, one of the reasons for it is that it's actually quite hard to measure. So until now we didn't have the opportunity to actually sequence entire genomes. And, um, or just recently we actually came around to do that. And so when we started doing this with humans, so just us modern humans, just parents and offspring, we started seeing that there are actually only few differences between parent and offspring, and the mutation rate that we always assumed would be true actually doesn't really fit very well. And um, so with less mutations that you see from generation to generation, it actually appears that events that we measure just by the number of mutations that happen in a certain amount of time are actually further back in the past. And I think this switch of understanding the mutation rate better explains this discordance between these two initial uh, estimates and the later estimates. Okay. We have a... Was that a a praise for the uh, answer? Yeah, fantastic. Good job, guys. Okay, um, we'll, we'll now switch to the uh, second half. Uh, first off, we will put Josh on the spot. Where's Josh? Okay. Uh, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, what evidence supports presence of Neanderthal genes in human populations due to admixture as opposed to DNA coming from an ancestor to both? 
am I allowed to say good question? <laughs> or, um, <laughs> so it's a fantastic question, actually, because that's one of the most difficult things in these types of inferences is distinguishing sequences that were inherited from admixture versus being shared from a common ancestor. And so the um, approach that we're using really relies on finding uh, Neanderthal sequences based on both divergence and how long those sequences are. And so if it was just a common ancestor, so incomplete lineage sorting, you would expect the chunks to be much smaller in size compared to what we're detecting. But it does complicate the inference, and it's something that you have to be really careful about. In the hybridization of archaic and modern humans, was it male, modern, was it male, moderns, and female Neanderthals, or vice versa, or both? So the, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase the question. So was there a sex bias in hybridization? Um, and I, I think... It's a fascinating question that we've thought a lot about, um, but haven't come up with a way to distinguish sort of if there was a bias and if there was in what direction. Um, In fact, we know that there's sex bias gene flow that has happened um, in different modern humans, uh, in different modern human populations, so it wouldn't be surprising, I think, if that was the case, but the approaches that we use to study uh, sex bias migration in modern human populations doesn't really work well in applying it to um, the interaction between modern and archaic populations. So I think it's a great question. We don't know the answer yet. Um, I think it's something that hopefully a lot of people are thinking about um, because it's a complicated question, but one that I think is, is worth figuring out how to answer. According to my National Geographic report... I'm smack in the average for Neanderthal at 2%, but I also have 2.6 Denisovan. Uh, I'm of basically European ancestry. How did I get so much Denisovan considering my background? Yeah, so this is, a fan- this is also a good question, and actually, um, I don't know why, but I've um, received about 10 emails in the last couple of days uh, asking this exact question. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to probably get myself in trouble. This is being recorded, right? Um, so National Geographic is going to sue me. But um, th- those estimates are just wrong. <laughs> so, um, so the, and in fact, um, if you look at the GenoChip um, uh, frequently asked question page, at some point they admitted that the Denisovan estimates were wrong too. Um, and so I think it's a complicated uh, sort of question to try to tease apart sequences that you're confident are Neanderthal versus confident that they were Denisovan. And sometimes you can't actually tell the difference. And I suspect that sort of the higher percentage of Denisovan ancestry estimated by the National Geographic Project was just cases of them sort of overestimating the the Denisovan contribution. So maybe over time they can do a better job, but I would be suspicious of um, what your ancestry estimates are, at least from Denise Evans right now. And um, if you would like to donate to my legal fund, (laughs) maybe we can post a website later. (laughs) I'm, of course, just pleased that my husband's percentage is higher. (laughs) Um, Okay, Tony, where are you? There you are. All right. 
I heard a great deal about Neanderthal DNA in European genomes, uh, but has there been any contribution or variation in mitochondrial DNA? A number of you could answer this, but they put they put your name they put your name down. <laughs> so I'll start first with uh, the context of the sorts of things I talked about, and, and no, we really you know haven't looked at that at all. And one of the big reasons is because the initial studies that tried to decide if there was um, admixture were focused on mitochondrial DNA for for reasons that have come up in some of the earlier talks and found very limited evidence. In fact, no evidence of that in looking at mitochondrial sequences. So there really wouldn't be a clear signature of what would be integrated there or not. So it's not, it's not really possible to look at that. Uh, is there an ongoing effort on the part of scientists to encourage expansion of genomic information from... Um, for uh, medical data or from these large medical uh, organizations like Scripps and UCSD, and a number of people asked why there weren't any dots on your map in the West. Uh, <laughs> well, yes, so there, there was one. There's one at Washington, uh, University of Washington is, is, is a partner in this um, in, in this in this network that we used, but there are similar efforts that are coming up on on the west coast, for example, Kaiser has, has a, a large database that has some similar attributes to what to what we have and have been looking at that they 're building and this is a, a wide you know as I showed across a lot of the the world um, countries and individual um, hospital systems are really really excited about the potential of electronic medical record data linked to genetic data for the purposes of precision or personalized medicine, as you heard. So there's great, great interest. And you, you might also have heard uh, several months ago, there's the Precision Medicine Initiative announced by the president. It's a nationwide effort to get millions of people across the country involved in systems like this. So from, that's, that's great from the perspective of understanding the genetics of disease. But from my perspective, it's also great about trying to understand the um, the, 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 evolution, the evolution of our, of our species and how that relates to our risk for disease. Okay. Johannes. Uh, since you're German. No, no, no. <laughs> no vice versa, please. Is it, is it Neanderthal or Neanderthal? Uh, <laughs> wow. I'm the wrong question. I should refer to Kai or Matthias for that again. But um, I, I actually came from the Leipzig school myself as well, and there we call it Tal, not Thal, which goes back to some uh, phonetic change that actually happened about 100 years ago in Germany, where we now call a valley Tal, so it was T, whereas uh, 150 years ago when the Neanderthal was discovered in the Neander Valley, it was still with TH. So therefore, I think we have changed our language and we therefore adopted also the T and not the TH, but I know it's under discussion and debate, so... Um, Our, our linguistics for today. Um, okay, is the second migration related to the spread of Indo-European language? And what contribution do you think warfare played in some of these large-scale genetic migrations? Um, 
So in the paper that we published last year, we actually hypothesized that the SAC migration was also related to the spread of Indo-European languages. And I think there is uh, more and more evidence actually popping up that this is actually true. I'm working in the institute now. I was one of the leading um, uh, linguists that actually has done uh, divergence estimates of ancient languages, Russell Gray. And they have actually dated that the early divergence of uh, Indo-European languages was something like 8,000 years ago, which is actually younger than the uh, separation of um, Anatolian um, uh, populations from basically the Near East uh, to Europe. So it really seems to better actually relate to this um, split that might have happened six to 7,000 years ago, maybe in the steppes. So I think there's actually very good evidence for that. Also, there is more evidence uh, coming to light soon on uh, the genetic makeup of early um, farmers in the Near East. And I think there will be also interesting uh, to look at that. But from my point of view, I think there is very good um, evidence for that. But of course, it's very difficult to link uh, genes and language because, of course, those ancient skeletons and even DNA doesn't really tell us what those uh, people were speaking. But I think there's actually a good case for that. What was the second question? Oh, warfare, yes. Um, so um, the people that actually spread during the time, this corded wear culture, is actually also called the battle axe culture. So, um, so much for that question. Um, I think there is um, very strong evidence that um, those people have actually been quite violent. So they are almost all of them um, buried um, with axes, um, which were probably not just used to chop wood, but maybe also hats. So um, I think there is actually some evidence for that how strong that evidence is and if that would explain the complete turnover is, is quite um, uncertain, but um, it might have also been um, related to that. Again, we don't really know whether it was um, diseases, whether it was some other um, changes in the environment or really um, uh, kind of warfare that have actually caused this genetic turnover, but it's a good question. <laughs> So there were a couple of questions of uh, basically asking, we have this really rich, detailed record in Europe. Why don't we have it anywhere else? Um, I think, as Anne said, we are getting there. So I think uh, Maria has shown that we get more and more genetic information from the Americas. And I think there's also a lot of ancient genomes coming to light in the next few years in the Americas. Even for Africa, we have seen the first ancient genomes, not from Africa. They're only about 4,000 years old, but still they have actually given us some first controversial results, um, as we heard, but also I think some very exciting and interesting insights. So I think we are getting material now from uh, Africa, the Americas, soon probably also from Australia and Oceania, and I think we will actually learn more um, about those different parts of the world. That we know so much about Europe is also because there has been a lot of archaeology and paleoanthropology done in Europe, so therefore we have probably many more skeletons that have been excavated in Europe, but I think we're soon uh, catching up also in other parts of the world, which is actually an extremely exciting time, because unlike people that are working on archaic humans, we're not just dealing with 300 fossils, we are actually dealing with millions of fossils that basically can be um, actually study genetically now, and we will learn a tremendous amount about human history studying those millions of fossils in the next uh, few years, which is a really exciting time, and I'm really glad to be part of that, so thank you. Let's see, uh, how fast, um, in miles per year, I guess, do you think ancient people would have migrated since they've got 8,000 plus miles to get all the way down to Chile, to Monteverde? Uh, does a thousand years 
seem likely. I think in kilometers, not in miles. <laughs> no, but actually, uh, there is um, actually 1,000 years is like an estimate now for the time that it took people to move all the way from uh, Alaska to Monteverde. So that's, that's an estimate um, now, and I don't know how many miles or kilometers that is. Is there some evidence for migration into the Americas around 30,000 years BP? Um, there's some questions about, I guess, some bones and caves in Brazil. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's still very controversial. So I, I didn't want to bring it up because it's very debatable. So there is um, evidence in, in um, Brazil of some something that looks like stone tools that could have been made by humans, but it also, like some people argue that that's just the shape of a rock falling from somewhere that is somewhere high. So, yeah, it's inconclusive. Uh, and the last question, could the shared skull morphology among Austronesians and South Americans be a result of shared Denisovan or Denisovan-like ancestry? Uh, I don't know, but actually what we know um, about skull morphology is that it's highly variable and that there is uh, many environmental factors that weigh in. Um, so what we actually think is happening here is uh, some sort of adaptation, uh, in, in this part, at least in the Pericus and the Fuego Patagonians. But um, I had my, that question myself as well. Like, is if maybe this signal that we see in South America could be something of shared Denisovan ancestry because it's, it's been observed also uh, that in these particular groups in the uh, Savante, well, in the Caritiana and Surui, there's also high Denisovan ancestry there. So I don't know if that could be a confounder. Yeah. Okay, on behalf of CARTA, I'd like to thank all those who made this symposium possible to the chairs, our fe featured speakers, our supporters and to the audience for attending and your great questions. We forgot to specifically thank George Svoboda for playing the guitar so well in the beginning. And, and the person who made this slide always leaves his name off. Jesse Roby did the artwork. So I'd like to leave you with a closing question to ponder. Why are there no persisting true hybrid species of us humans with Denisovans, Neanderthals, or anyone else? In other words, what happened to everyone else? So Svante Pablo was visiting here a month or two ago, and he and I had a chat, and he came up with a possible answer. The answer is that humans are the most dominant, expansive, ecologically invasive, aggressive, and destruction species this planet has ever experienced. And that took care of everybody else. <laughs> and so we need to understand uh, our species, of course. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.